This is the Hockey News Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Hockey News Podcast, powered by BetMGM. It's Matt Larkin here with Ryan Kennedy. And always pulling the marionette strings. Stephen Ellis is also with us. And guys, we clearly know what we have to start the podcast with here. It's the offer sheet. And I was even looking at our web traffic results. And the top three stories on our website right now are all about the epic revenge offer sheet sent to Jesperi Kotkaniemi, or signed, I should say. He did sign it. Uh, the Carolina Hurricanes signed him $6.1 million one year. And I do say revenge offer sheet. We know it's revenge. Because there was a $20 signing bonus, which was the non to Sebastian Ajo's number as revenge of the 2019 offer sheet. We know as well there was the language used in the press, the presser by Don Waddell that also just implied, you know, it was identical language to Mark Bergman a couple of years ago. So we know it's, it's very clearly a revenge offer sheet. Uh, but let's talk about what to do if you're the Montreal Canadiens, Ryan. I want you to kick off the podcast here. With your take, I wrote a bit on the website. I have thoughts as well, but I want to hear what you would do if you were Mark Bergevin. Do you match this offer sheet? Why or why not? You know, I was originally going to say, yes, you match the offer sheet because your depth of center is already terrible. Um, you know, at this point, we don't even know if Kotkaniemi is an NHL center. He might be better suited on the wing, but... He's still so young that I think you say he has the potential to be a, a middle six center. But then I, you know, the more I think of it, they're in such a cap crunch in Montreal. It's $6 million. They would probably have to trade one of their billion wingers that they currently have uh, in order to make things work, or at least they'd have to move some guys around. Now I'm more on the fence. You know, it, it really depends on, what Mark Bergevin's expectations are for this season and even the season after that. If you're looking at your roster right now and saying we're toast, uh, we cannot compete, then maybe you take the picks and you, you build on. Um, if you say to yourself, well, you know, once Carey Price gets healthy, once Shea Weber gets healthy, fingers crossed, you know, maybe we can make the playoffs again, uh, or at least the year after, you know, we, we could be back in the mix. Maybe you go out and you sign like a Tyler Bozak uh, on the cheap or, or some free agent, or you, or you make a deal where you get someone that can help. Because right now you have Nick Suzuki, who's, you know, very promising and, uh, you know, had a great playoff run, had that great chemistry with Cole Caulfield, Tyler Toffoli. You got Jake Evans, uh, and then, I don't really know. And you don't have a lot in the pipeline when it comes to centers. You have Ryan Paling, who so far has uh, failed to prove himself as an everyday NHLer. You have Jan Misak coming up, who's, uh, you know, a, a promising prospect, but not a sure thing. Uh, you know, maybe he's a second line center. Maybe he's just a top six winger at the next level. You're, you're still waiting to figure that out. So I, I think it really depends on how much faith Mark Bergevin has in the rest of this group uh, in terms of what he does. I, I don't think there's a good option. I think this really kind of exposed Montreal and the fact that it's $6 million for Kakanimi, which is probably twice what he's worth, really puts them in a bind. 
Yeah, for sure. Those are really good points. And I, I do think it's not a coincidence that this was the target, not just from wrench standpoint, but in terms of successful offer sheets. And I remember doing a story about this a couple of years ago where I talked to Kevin Lowe and Dustin Penner, the barn fight incident. And what they explained was the offer sheet, the perfect storm for an offer sheet is when you have a discrepancy between, between the original team's valuation of the player and the new team. So if the new team thinks the player is worth a lot more, it can comfortably make that offer. The player is compelled to accept because it's a much better offer he's gonna get than he's what he's gonna get from his original team. And the original team's not gonna match because they just don't believe the player is worth that much, which is why Dustin Penner got stolen by Edmonton because the, the Ducks, they were mad. Brian Burke was mad, but he said, part of why he was mad is he knew, no, I will not pay Dustin Penner this, so I'm losing Dustin Penner. So I do think Carolina is banking on Montreal having the same dilemma and deciding is Barry Kakanyemi is not worth $6.1 million. You could say, well, do you pay him for one year? But the problem is you if you don't sign him to an extension by next July 1st, then you have to qualify him at $6.1 million. So either you have to pay up again, because if you're Kakanyemi's camp, why sign an extension? Just wait to be qualified. If you're not qualified, you get to be a UFA. You can go anywhere you want. So there's not a lot of motivation, I think, from Kock and Yemi's side to sign an extension if Montreal matches and he, say, he stays for another year at 6.1. If I looked at the, so I did write about it. You can look it on the website. I sort of outlined the pros and cons, but if I'm sort of summarizing them. You know, the, the pro, the biggest pro, like you said, Ryan, is that the depth at center. It's a big problem. We saw it in the playoffs because the sort of line matching that John Cooper could do in the, in the Stanley Cup final, essentially erasing Philip Deneau, that was a preview of what Montreal looks like without Philip Deneau. It put a ton of responsibility on Nick Suzuki's plate. His line was forced to face off against the Kucherov line, and this is Montreal's future now. With Deneau gone, Nick Suzuki is going to have to carry the world on his shoulders this year, especially because Kakanyemi he was sort of ticketed to be the number two center, and there's a huge drop-off. Like you said, Ryan, Jake Evans, Cedric Paquette, Poor Ryan Paling, the worst thing that ever happened to him, I said this at the time, that hat trick in his first game, it created different expectations than what he actually was supposed to be as a player. He can still make an impact, but he's more of a defensive center, in my opinion. But it's going to be tough because that's a huge problem at center. Even with Deneau gone, it's already looking barren. If Kakanyemi's gone as well, that's even worse. On the other hand, what can you do with that $6.1 million? Like you said, Ryan, maybe you you go after another target, and we're going to get into it later, but... Jack Eichel now makes an actual, a lot of hockey sense, not just because of the Pat Brisson, Mark Bergevin connection, but if you could bring in a Jack Eichel and then you, you can sort of do the Pedersen Horvat like Vancouver, you know, if Nick Suzuki keeping your number two, your Horvat type of center who plays the two-way game and you have a more of a pure score as your number one center, that makes sense. You probably have to, I don't know, trade Jonathan Durant for that, that to happen. But these are a lot of ifs. And I just don't know if it's going to work. I, I think as well, if you're looking at the, just Kakanyemi's career so far. He's 21 years old. He's extremely young. He's younger than 96% of the forwards who played in the league this year. That would be a reason to keep him. On the other hand, he's shown very little. He's not been a very good play driver. The Habs did not trust him in the Stanley Cup final. Dominique Ducharme did not want to use Kakanyemi for the last couple of games of the Cup final. So I don't know if that bridge is going to be permanently burned as well. There's so many, as you can tell, if I sound indecisive, it's because I am I'm going back and forth. I think there's a lot of reasons for and against matching. Ultimately, I think that the pros of not matching are stronger than the pros of matching, especially because, like you said, Ryan, you, there are those two picks in play, the first and the third. And the underrated storyline here, in my opinion, Carolina, we don't know for sure if they're going to be good this year. They just lost Dougie Hamilton. They just traded away Alex Nelkovic, who had a 932 save percentage. What if Carolina's worse this year? What if they regress significantly and those picks are actually decent? 
what if that first round pick is 15th overall instead of 25th overall? I think that's something you have to consider as well. Not an easy choice, I think, if you're Mark Bergerman, but I, I would lean toward letting Kakanyemi go, even though it hurts you, obviously, lineup-wise in the short term. Uh, I, I did hint at Jack Eichel as a possibility for the Habs. So let's talk about Eichel next. Uh, we know now that he has moved on uh, from his agent, and now it's going to be Pat Brisson. Uh, and Pat Brisson obviously is the most high-profile high agent in the NHL. And Ryan, I know you know Pat, and you're very familiar with a lot of agents around the league. So how do you think that Brisson taking over for Eichel is going to change the situation? Well, there's a couple of things that sort of play to Eichel's strengths here. Uh, one of which is Pat Brisson is a really good problem solver. Um, you know, when it comes to situations with his players, he knows everything, you know, he, he knows all the possibilities and, you know, he can find guys jobs, uh, you know, in tough situations. Obviously, Jack Eichel is a sort of a, he's a very coveted asset. Uh, it's more about getting him healthy at this point and figuring out, you know, uh, what we assume to be an exit from Buffalo. Um, but sort of that's one prong of it. The second is, you know, moving over to CAA hockey, you're not just getting Paprasan. You have JP Barry there. You have Don Rizzo. You have Jimmy Nice. You have Laura Keegan. You have Mark McKay. You have Bane Pettinger. You have a whole team that all have their areas of expertise, whether it's the cap, where, whether it's health, um, wh whether it's just regional. You have all these people that have been in the business for you know, either a long time or you have some young up-and-comers with you know, great ideas. You also have in that infrastructure you know, the team that helped Sidney Crosby get back on track health-wise when he was going through all those concussion problems and neck problems. You know, that was CA's team. And I remember being in Los Angeles years ago for a rookie camp that they held with Nathan McKinnon, Seth Jones, uh, you know, a whole bunch of other young players. Samuel Moran was there. Um, it was uh, Anthony Mantha. It was kind of hilarious how many uh, sort of 17-year-olds there were that ended up in the NHL. But, you know, one of Crosby's doctors uh, gave a uh, sort of a tutorial for the players just on concussion awareness and the symptoms and things like that. So you're getting all these resources under Pat Brisson. And then of course you're getting, uh, as you mentioned, you know, one of the premier agents in the NHL, a guy who knows everybody, knows the ins and outs of the industry, knows how to get a good deal for his clients. And I think more importantly, puts his clients in the best situations. So you're looking at like Andre Kopitar, you know, getting him cups, um, you know, CAA, CAA has Jonathan Taves and Patrick Kane, got them cups. They have Crosby and Malkin, got them cups. If you're Jack Eichel, that's what you want. You know, you've got your big contract, but you want to be in a situation where you can win. You want to be in the playoffs. You want to go deep in the playoffs. That's the track record you have with Brisson and Barry and CAA. Yeah, I'm with you. And I think specifically Pat Brisson, I think what stands out about him is he's the star maker, right? He's the agent to the stars, the closest thing you could say. And so he's not, I don't think he's someone who blinks in these high leverage situations. You know, when you think about the John Tavares hosting all the crazy meetings before he signed with the Leafs, that was Pat Brisson in the room with Tavares handling all of those meetings. When you look at Seth Jones, who requested a trade, who was Seth Jones's agent, who was behind or not behind, but who was helping facilitate that and put the sign and trade. It was Pat Brisson. Pierre-Luc Dubois requested a trade in the middle of the season. 
who is Pierre-Luc Dubois' agent that may or may not have had a role in helping that happen. It's Pat Purcell. So he's no stranger to these predicaments, to high stakes, to big stars wanting out of their environment. And it's no disrespect to Peter Fish. It's just he represents sort of smaller fish, guys like, you know, Oliver Bjorkstrand or John Marino. And it's not the same thing as representing Crosby and Nathan McKinnon. And, and like you said, Kane and Taves, the list goes on and on and on for Pat Purcell. He's also really respected around the league. We know that, that his name has even been thrown in the hat as a GM candidate before. He's very familiar in negotiating really big contracts with GMs around the league. So I just think it's way it's way more possible, in my opinion, that you can have Brisson kind of reaching out to his buddies, these GMs around the league that he knows well, helping to facilitate facilitate something. I think the odds of an Eichel trade go way up. Of course, we mentioned Montreal because of the connection, the friendship between Brisson and Marc Bergevin. I do think there's a, a legitimate hockey fit there for the Habs as well, if they can make the money work. You also, of course, have to look now at the LA Kings. There's the connection way back with Pat Brisson and Luke Robitaille. Of course, our owner, Graham Rooston as well. They were all crew back in LA back in the day. Uh, and also, of course, there's a relationship with Rob Blake there. The thing with, with LA is on one hand, I can really see it for Buffalo because LA, I think as much as any team in the league has the prospect capital to offer Buffalo, whether it's a first round pick, whether it's Arthur Kaliev or Alex Turka, or if you really want to go big and you throw Quinton Byfield out there, I don't know if you ever would, but I'm just saying that LA has the options. They have such a deep farm system. The only problem is LA's strength is already centered, right? You're already really deep there. You have not only Byfield, you have Kopitar. You just signed Philip Deneau. You have Turcotte eventually coming up the wings. Quinton Byfield, Gabe Velarde. It's really strong up the middle there. So I don't know if LA would be willing to make that push, but you have to think they kick the tires now with that relationship because that would be a very logical landing spot, I think, for Jack Eichel. Regardless of what happens, I do think the odds of an Eichel trade now have gone up significantly with Pat Brisson now in tow. Uh, so it's Tuesday as we record this podcast. Uh, at the time of recording, we don't know yet if there's been an official announcement about Olympic participation, but it is reportedly in imminent. We are probably going to see a deal struck to send NHL players to the 2022 Beijing Olympics. Uh, we already hinted at it on our previous podcast, you know, who we have as the favorite. We both said Canada. And when it comes to speculation and buzz, I think Canada always seems to generate the most, at least where we live in this market. And there's always discussion about snubs, surprises. So let's start with a, a predicted snub. Thinking ahead to when this roster gets named, Ryan, give me a predicted snub that might surprise people when the time comes. Well, you know, Canada is so loaded, particularly up front, that we are going to see uh, some pretty big snubs. I'm going to go with Mark Shifley from the Winnipeg Jets. You know, part of the reason is, you know, Canada has so many great centers. You're looking at McDavid, Crosby, McKinnon, and probably Ryan O'Reilly as your, your centers, with O'Reilly being sort of the shutdown guy. Um, which means like Braden Point has to move to the wing because you're going to want Braden Point there. And then you have, uh, you know, Jonathan Huberto, you have Mitch Marner, you're going to have Patrice Bergeron probably on the wing with Brad Marchand. Uh, you know, if you want to reunite that line with Crosby, that was so amazing in past international plays. So you have Bergeron on the wing as well. It's pushing a lot of other guys down the, the, the roster. You're, you're going to want Mark Stone on that line, you know, on that roster as well as a shutdown guy, you know, you look at Stone O'Reilly and I'm not sure who the third guy on that line is. Sean Couturier, how about that for your fourth Sean line? Sean Couturier, yeah, another center that, you know, you, you move to the wing. I mean, that would just be a devastating quote-unquote yeah, fourth line. That's your checking line? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Your, your checking line would be the best line on most NHL teams. Um, 
So I, I, I think Shifley might get lost in the shuffle there uh, simply because there are too many guys uh, that already do his job and, and do it at a slightly higher level. So, I, you know, it's, it's going to be tough. There's going to be uh, some big snubs. And that's just, unfortunately, what happens when you have so much death. For sure. And, and I, I was sort of thinking down the same pathway as you because the center position is so strong. You also have Matt Barzell out there. So what do you do with Matt Barzell? He's someone who would probably be worthy of making the team as well. And by the same logic, because of the log jam at center, I have John Tavares as, as the surprise snub. Of course, he was on the 2014 team. Uh, but because of that depth up the middle, I don't know if there's a home for Tavares, especially because of the fact that, you know, the strength of Tavares' game in real life is that he does everything pretty well. He's, you know, he's shown the ability to score goals. He can win faceoffs. He can play a two-way game. He can be a playmaker. You know, obviously he's never been a great skater, but he's improved a lot. But he's not spectacular in any one category. And in Canada, with so much depth, basically, basically you can make your team spectacular in, in every category. So it's like, do you need John Tavares to win faceoffs when you have Couturier, O'Reilly, Bergeron on the team? Not really. Do you need John Tavares to be the goal scorer when you have, you know, Nathan McKinnon and Braden Point and whoever, Crosby, the list goes on and on. You don't necessarily need him to be your sniper. You can have Steven Stamkos out there on your power play. You don't really need him to be your checker because we just mentioned the guys that can be your, your elite checkers, right? Sean Couturier has a Selkie trophy. Ryan O'Reilly, guys like that. Oh, and Ryan O'Reilly has a Selkie trophy too, doesn't he? He does. Oh, yeah. On the Selkie and the Con Smythe in the same year. So all those guys do the John Tavares things a little bit better. So I just don't know if there's a home for him. You could argue maybe he's a, a great taxi squad kind of player because he can play on any line in any role. That is the value of having a Tavares. So if he makes a team, I think that's why. But I just don't know if there's, a on paper, a, an immediate home for him. So let's go the other way now. Who's your surprise invitee that people might not be thinking as an automatic to make Team Canada? I'm going to go with Adam Pellick of the New York Islanders. And part of me almost wonders if Team Canada would just go Adam Pellick, Ryan Pulock, uh, that fantastic pairing in New York. I mean, they're so good defensively and they can give you offense as well. You know, so great when it turns to, you know, when it comes to analytics. Um, but, you know, Pellick in particular, I think had an incredible season and will continue uh, to be a high level NHLer even if he's not the, the household name that, you know, some of the, uh, some of other Canada's defensemen might be, I think he'd be super valuable. And again, you know, we talked about all the firepower team Canada's going to have defensively, you know, we're going to see Kale McCarr, obviously, and Alex Petrangelo and probably Shea Theodore, but you know, they don't need a ton of offensive defensemen. They basically need guys who are, really good in their own end. They can get the puck to those forwards and let those guys do the damage. You know, Pelic is a guy that you can put out in you know penalty kill situations. He can play tough minutes. He can play against other teams, best players. Uh, so you can stick him on Austin Matthews. You can stick him on Elias Pettersson, whoever it's going to be. And he's going to give you a lot of value. So I, I think he would be a perfect selection. For sure. And it's funny, I had written down Pelik and Pulak, but I thought, no, I know Ryan mentioned that before. That's his idea. I can't steal it from him. So yeah. but I'm thinking in a similar way in terms of who has emerged as a really underrated shutdown defenseman. And, you know, his own teammate, Aaron Ekblad, is probably going to be the one who gets the invite or at least the expected invite. But I would not sleep on Mackenzie Weaker. Mm. If Canada is taking more of an analytical approach to how it builds his team, Weaker, I think, emerged as one of the dominant shutdown defensemen in the league last year and people could say oh no he just you know he took over when Aaron Ekblad was was out but no they it's not like they, they weren't a pair and he also 
his ice time actually went down when Ekblad was out. So it wasn't like, oh, he just got thrust into the spotlight and excelled because he was given more responsibility. He was playing that well before Ekblad got hurt. And I do think, you know, we need to see, he's someone I think who needs to earn it. He has to have a really strong first half of this season to get on that radar. But I think he's extremely underrated. I would have said Shea Theodore a year ago, but I think now Shea Theodore is pretty much a given. You could just put Theodore and Pietrangelo, just drop that pair right onto the team if you really want to, the teammates as well. Uh, so Uyghur would be my pick. Uh, sticking with the international theme. So again, we're recording this podcast on a Tuesday morning. So by the time you listen to this, it's possible that the women's worlds are over and you know the winner of Canada USA. So I don't want to focus on making a prediction for the game. I'm thinking more big picture. And sometimes I just like to soak in the amazing rivalry that is Canada USA and women's hockey international. So my question for you, Ryan, is where does this rank in terms of the greatest sports rivalries in the world? In my opinion, it's very high, but I want to give you the floor first. Where do you rank it? Is it is it legitimately right up there with the greatest rivalries in sports? I think from the players' perspective, it would be up there. But in terms of like zeitgeist, it, you, you can't compare it to like Yankees, Red Sox, or like you know whoever the Spanish soccer teams are. I don't know what their names are. Barcelona and Real Madrid. Or... There you go. Yeah. Um, yeah. In, in terms of like competition you know these are the two teams that have been the powers ever since women's hockey you know got onto the international stage in a real way and you know because of the pool of players when it comes to domestic play um you know they they all know each other i mean they all went through the ncaa because there are no other developmental avenues for women in hockey um so in terms of on ice like you definitely have that fire but in, in terms of overall impact um, you know, I, I'm sure the ratings bear it out that, you know, we still have a long way to go in terms of, um, giving women's hockey the exposure that it needs to sort of go to that next level in terms of, you know, when it's broadcast, who's broadcasting it, what kind of audience it's attracting, uh, right now it's still growing and, you know, it's doing well, but there are those factors of, you know, when it's not the Olympics, are people paying attention? Is the casual hockey fan paying attention? When are we going to get one United Women's Professional League mm-hmm. that can attract the sponsorship, the talent, all in one place where you can really make a go of it? I think it's still very much a work in progress in that sense. Yeah, that's fair. And I think if you if you think of, you know, magnitude in terms of how many people witness the rivalry, you could say, Reverend Djokovic Nadal, you could say, you know, like you said, Yankees, Red Sox. I think the Dodgers Padres rivalry is something that's really growing right now. You could say Habs Bruins, you could say Lakers Celtics, but I'm going to take a different viewpoint. I think this is the greatest rivalry in sports if you view it through the lens of the people participating in it, because the history of this rivalry is, is just absolutely unprecedented. You can't name any other sport where two teams for 25 years, 25 years, you can, you can say, you can even say the entire sports history were the only two powers meeting. It's the equivalent of imagine if two teams met in the NBA finals every year for 25 years straight, there's just no comparison. And what's really fascinating is the continuity of the teams, especially if you jump from Olympics to Olympics, players like Haley Wickenheiser and Hillary Knight and the Lamarue sisters and Brianna Decker. There's so many players and Mary Philippe Land that they've played on multiple teams. So there's tremendous continuity over, you know, Periods of four years, eight years, 12 years, decades. We're talking decades of players that are still competing against each other. And there's there's an element that is almost like a Hollywood movie where you have 
romances between players on the opposite sides, where you have Megan Duggan being married to Jillian Apps, you have Caroline Ouellette and Julie Chu. So part of this historic rivalry, and again, I'm, I'm not talking about right now the rosters for this game, I'm talking about the overall history. It's unbelievable the idea that you have players on the opposite sides of the teams being romantically involved. It just adds another layer, which to me is unbelievable. It's extremely exciting. And I know in terms of the number of eyeballs that, that are witnessing the games, you can't compare it. But if we're talking about the actual passion and the drama and the storylines, the amazing 2014 Olympics, the 2018 Olympics, both games had unbelievable drama. You had the crazy comeback by Canada. You had the shootout in 2018. It just goes on and on. And I think if you look at the, if you were to watch a documentary kind of synthesizing it, putting it all together, I think you'd be blown away. So I'm going to say that this is the greatest rivalry in sports, even if the world as a whole doesn't necessarily know about it. It doesn't change the fact that there's no comparison to it, in my opinion. Um, sticking again, I, I'm, I'm talking international. I know it's been a few weeks now since the Holinka Gretzky tournament uh, finished, but it's something that got, kind of got overlooked because we were in the, the peak of the news cycle, but it was still worth discussing. And it was the yet another unbelievable performance by Matt Vemichkov coming off a ridiculous world under 18 where he had the highest points per game ever for a player that was two years out from his draft year. So we know that we're seeing an epic duel shaping up for 2023 between Michkov and of course, Connor Bedard. So Ryan is the prospect man. Uh, I want to hear your thoughts. Is, is this an actual rivalry? Are we seeing a Crosby Ovechkin set up here? Are they actually on par? And is it going to be a coin flip as to who goes number one? Or is Bedard still the leader in the clubhouse? For me, I still believe that Bedard is going to go number one, but I think it's going to be an amazing NHL rivalry. And we saw it in real time at the under-18s when Canada and Russia played, where, you know, Russia went up early and then Bedard, he got really mad in his next shift. You could tell he was like, I'm going to score on the shift because I'm Connor Bedard, nobody can stop me. And sure enough, he scored. Um, so it was super fun watching those two guys go against each other. And we're going to see it for years to come at the international level. The reason I think Bedard is basically a lock to go number one is he's a center. Mitch Koff is a winger. You know, you always go center over winger if you're you know, trying to build a, a foundation. And if you're picking first overall, that tends to be the situation. The other thing is Matthew Mitchkoff is signed with SKA St. Petersburg until the, until basically 2026. Uh, it's, if I understand KHL contract, it's probably like April 30th, 2026. So if you draft him, the earliest you could get him is the end of the 25-26 NHL season. Uh, and if you're a rebuilding team, do you really want to wait, you know, basically three, four seasons uh, well, I guess it'd be three full seasons in order to get his services. I mean, he's worth the wait, but if you could have Bedard instead right away, you're probably going that way. Honestly, if you could have Adam Fantilli uh, basically right away, would you do that instead of Mishkov? That's going to be a very interesting thing uh, to look out for as well as these three players develop. Uh, but again, once they get to the NHL, I think it's going to be a Crosby Ovechkin situation where we're going to have so much fun watching the two of them uh, because they have such dynamic skill sets. They're so creative, uh, you know, and they're so quick and they work so well with other high end players that it's just going to be hilarious. But in terms of, you know, picking first overall, I, I can't imagine anybody passing on Connor Bedard. 
you make a really good point there. I kind of forgotten about the the St. Petersburg situation, and it, it's relevant because it's not like it's a prospect that's going to need several years to develop. Like when Kirill Kaprizov was first drafted, he wasn't perceived as a can't miss superstar. He wasn't a first round pick. It took him a while to develop. But in this case with Mitchkov, you're legitimately losing important, really good years because he's going to be that good even as a teenager, right? Like Sidney Crosby won the scoring title as a teenager, right? And Alex Vetch, they're all doing things when they're 19, 20, 21 years old. So you're actually losing important, relevant years, I think, from Mitchkov. Um, I see the, the, the Crosby-Ovechkin comparisons in terms of playing style for sure. Obviously, both these kids are a lot smaller. Then again, they're, they're a lot smaller than both, right? Sidney Crosby's 200 pounds, tree trunk legs, and, and Mitchkov's not even close to Ovechkin's size. But neither kid has done growing. They're so good, so young that we cannot rule out significant growth spurts. We look at what, what Mitch Marner was when he was 16 years old. He grew several inches by the time he actually broke into the NHL. Now he's closer to six feet tall. So we don't really know what they're going to be size-wise. I can see it game-wise. Obviously, Mitchkov is the guy that wants the puck on his stick all-time scoring machine. Bedard is more of the all-around threat. And I agree, Bedard's got to have the inside track as a center. And even if we look at the career trajectories of Crosby Ovechkin, it's played out very close. Uh, without giving it away, we are going to be doing a major project that involves ranking all-time players. I'm super excited about it. And Sidney Crosby and Alex Ovechkin are both, I'm going to say, maybe or maybe not around the top 10. That's all I'll say. I won't go into more specifics. But we do have Crosby with a slight edge over Ovechkin because I think he just had more of a dominant all-around impact over the course of his career, even though always the greatest goal scorer of all time. So I do think you could see similar trajectories for Bedard and Michkov, even if physically they don't look like Crosby and Ovechkin in terms of their physical builds. But I think their impacts, I think it's a, it's not just one of those lazy comparisons. I think it actually does fit this time. Uh, let's get to some listener questions, Ryan. We have some good ones. I like these ones. The first one is from Derek Seltzer this week. Derek wants to know who are some deep sleepers for the Calder Trophy. It's tough because it's a bit of an oxymoronic question in the sense that anyone you can think of that's a Calder Trophy candidate, well, are they really a sleeper? But in order to be even on the radar, you have to ha at least think they have a good chance to make the team, which means they're probably a pretty high-end prospect. So what I tried to do with my picks here was avoid the really obvious, you know, which is Trevor Zegras or Cole Caulfield or Jamie Drysdale. I think there's a next tier down. All of these guys are still really big prospects, but none of them is a guarantee to even make his team. So that's that's that was sort of my main criterion here. Uh, Matt Boldy in Minnesota is my guy. I think he made tremendous strides. He's just a pure scorer. I think he's ready to break into the wild. I think they could really use him. And I think he's someone who could lead all rookies and goals where everyone's got their eyes on Cole Caulfield. If Boldy makes the wild, I think he has every bit of a chance to uh, every bit as strong of a chance of doing it. I think you have to look hard at Vesely Podkols in, in Vancouver as well. He's just an all-around, just physical, aggressive, feisty player who I think his game is going to be NHL ready very quickly. He could be in that top nine right away with potential to rise into the top six right away as well. He's someone I think is a heart and soul player you have to look for. And I also wrote down, just don't forget about the goalies. Spencer Knight and Jeremy Swayman, you might not think that they're rookies, but they didn't they didn't lose their Calder eligibility because they came so late. So one of those guys could easily swoop in. I know I named too many players here, Ryan, so hopefully I didn't take one of yours. Uh, I'm, I'm going to throw one more in there just to be a douche, Maurice Sider. I think Maurice Sider is going to be an all-around beast in the NHL if he makes the team this year. So I just named five players. So good luck finding another one, Ryan, but I, I know you can do it. I got two. How about that? Boom. Uh, I do like your Spencer Knight pick that it is important to remember that goaltenders – uh, can make a huge impact, uh, particularly because Florida's going to be good this year. Uh, but the two names that I was thinking of, one is uh, Connor McMichael, 
Ooh. with the Washington Capitals. This is the kid that played in the AHL last year because there's no OHL season, and he led the Hershey Bears in scoring. I mean, he was really good. And if you look at the Washington Capitals, they didn't make any moves this offseason, really. And, you know, they have an aging core. They need some some new life. I mean, Anthony Mantha, you know, he came over by a trade, so he's kind of new-ish. But, you know, Connor McMichael, I think he's the kind of player where, you know, if he's not playing against top lines, he could do some real damage there. And it's also worth considering, you know, do the Caps trade Evgeny Kuznetsov? You know, we've talked talked about this you know often on the podcast but if you trade his nets off you know depending on what the return is that might open up a top six roster spot that Connor McMichael could uh, could earn himself so I think there's some potential there uh, the other name and this is a player that actually just signed his entry-level deal yesterday is Dylan Gunther with the Arizona Coyotes you know Arizona wasn't even supposed to have a first round pick uh, but new GM Bill Armstrong swung a deal and managed to get Gunther. Uh, I think it was a bit of a steal because, you know, in draft preview, we had Gunther as sort of a top three, top four guy. Arizona obviously obviously got him a few picks after that. Uh, Gunther is a pure scorer. I mean, he is amazing offensive talent. He's a strong kid. He moves well already. And if you look at that Coyotes roster on the wings, you know, you've got Phil Kessel, obviously, you know, you got Clayton Keller, uh, but who else do you have that's like top end? You got a lot of guys that are kind of like grindy and beefy, uh, but you don't have a lot of like skill. You don't have a lot of pure skill. Dylan Gunther is pure skill. So, I mean, even though he's only going to be 18 years old, I wouldn't count him out. There's definitely a lane for him to make Arizona straight out of the draft. I like it. I'm going to score the decision to Kennedy on that one. Just, I think, I think your picks were more sleeper than mine. Mine were a little more obvious. And the thing for Arizona too, they need it badly. I know it's not the same position, but Barrett Hayton, I think he's getting close to the, if it was going to happen, we would have seen something by now juncture, right? Um, I know he's still a young kid, but it's been a rough start to his career for sure. Uh, next question is from Ranton Raven. And I, if you're listening, if you're wondering why does Ranton Raven always get a question in there? It's because when I'm picking the questions, I, I look at the question first. I don't even look at who submitted it because I'm always trying to pick just the best question. So sometimes after the fact, I'll say, oh, it's another random raven. It's just because I like the questions. So there's no bias here. There's no favoritism. I'm just, it's all about the questions, baby. And I like this question. This question is, any remaining, are there any remaining RFAs who are vulnerable to an offer sheet? And the example that Ranton Raven gave was the Flames and Kyler Yamamoto, which is a perfect example for multiple reasons. There's a rivalry factor with Calgary Edmonton. And coming off a really disappointing season, I, I mentioned before, the optimal offer sheet conditions, it's not with a star player because the compensation is too crazy. It's when there's a player whose value is, under, is in question. And Yamamoto... He was a big disappointment after showing so much promise the year before on the dry side of the line. I did not expect his game to take the nose that it did last year. So there is a, a scenario in which there's a possible discrepancy in how each team involved would value the player. Also, the Oilers are really up against the cap. So you could really put the screws to them. So that's a perfect example. I'll give another one. Robert Thomas in St. Louis. So Thomas, someone we know his potential. He's a really intelligent player. He hasn't really gotten a chance in St. Louis, right? He's had, there's years where, where his analytics on his per 60 production has been excellent, but he never seems to rise out of that bottom six. And there's, it, it was an injury shortened season for him. 
uh, coming off an injury shortened year. So again, we have the possible discrepancy in value. It involves projection. If you're the team making the offer sheet, your best situation is if you're projecting on a guy because then maybe the team doesn't agree that the player is worth that much. The Blues are at roughly $80 million in cap space as well. So you could put them in a bind by offer sheeting Robert Thomas for whatever, $4 million, something that he hasn't proven to be worth yet. So to me, that's the type of player I'd be looking at. Yamamoto, great example. I say Robert Thomas as well. Mm. Yeah, I went uh, a couple of different ways. Uh, the first is Anthony Beauvillier with the New York Islanders. Uh, this is a play, and, and you know what? I have to say, maybe he's already re-signed and we don't know it. Uh, <laughs> New York hasn't announced anything this summer. They might have signed Zach Parise. They might have signed Kyle Palmieri. We have no idea. So I guess I'm flying a little blind here, but assuming that Anthony Beauvillier has not been re-signed yet, if I'm another team, I'm looking at, you know, a tremendous two-way player who's still young with a lot of potential. Um, and you know that the Islanders are up against the cap, uh, even though they're, you know, even though we don't know the particulars of the, the guys they've signed, um, you know, they, they didn't have that much cap space to begin with. So, you know, if you give a, sort of a high-ish offer to Beauvillier and, and sort of say to him, like, hey, we envision this role for you, know, this particular role for you, uh, I think you can really put the Islanders in a bind. And, you know, Jim Lou Lamoureux, uh, he's pretty smart. Um, you know, he can do a lot of magic with that cap. But, you know, an offer sheet might sort of uh, throw a span in the works uh, with Beauvillier. The other one is something we, we just talked about. Kirill Kaprizov, uh, you know, not signed yet by Minnesota. You know, there was a toxin going to the KHL. Um, you know, it, uh, clearly there's a, a particular deal he is looking for. If I'm another team, I mean, why wouldn't you try? Why wouldn't you back up the truck if you've got the money? Say, hey, we'll give you seven years and, you know, whatever you want. I don't know if it's $8 million or $9 million. Obviously, there's only so many teams that can do that. But – at the least, you put Minnesota in a bind where they would have to match that or, or give, you know, or take the picks. In worst case scenario, you get Kirill Kaprizov, one of the most dynamic young players in the game right now. So, I mean, that's something that I'm, I'm sure the Wild are, are thinking of right now, that they have a bit of an exposed asset who's a, a wild card. Uh, but if I'm a rival team, I would, and if, if, if I could pull it off, I would certainly attempt it. Hmm. And it's funny, I mentioned LA before for Jack Eichel, but I think if we're talking Kirill Kaprizov offer sheet, I think that would be a much better fit for LA because they need a lot more help on the wings than at center and draft pick compensation. They say, meh, our farm system's loaded. We can go without some first round picks, no problem. So I think that would be a pretty intriguing fit. Uh, next question is from Puck Junkies Senators. Would love to hear your take on the rebuilding process in the NHL. When should teams make that decision? Seems like we always talk about teams who continue to patch holes versus those who complete a full rebuild via the draft and what method is more successful. So it's sort of a two-part question. I think the, the juncture at which you need to rebuild is when you start to realize like the roller coasters on the way down. And I always call it like uh, my kind of mocking expression is the denial power rankings. It's when a team, their window is passed. They're not willing to admit it. They're, they're still soldiering on, making kind of desperate signings, but they're really just hanging on the, the playoff periphery. I think San Jose was in that boat for a while. I think the Calgary Flames are the current lords of the denial power rankings. And I still remember a conversation I had with Ken Holland when I said to him like five years ago, I was, and I, I said, is this playoff streak at the time they were 25 years? I said, is this a curse? Because it just, 
you're always trying to make the playoffs. Just keep that streak alive. And at the time, he was like, Franz Nielsen, come on down. Darren Hill, Abdelkader just throwing around all these bad contracts. And I think it was largely because there was a pressure to just stay. You know, don't give up. We're still the Detroit Red Wings. We're a proud fan franchise. But really, they were in denial. And they ended up setting themselves back a long time. So I think when you realize you're at that point, your roster is getting a little old. You're always finishing around ninth place. That's when it's time to start thinking about blowing it up. And in terms of the strategy, I think the blueprint is it's a hybrid of adding, you know, of, of getting prospects and adding key veterans. So I always say it's about achieving the critical mass of prospects. So let's say we use the Chicago Blackhawks of the, the team that won the cup in 2010 as a blueprint. Well, you used your high draft picks to get Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taves. Another first rounder was Brent Seabrook and you had Duncan Keith, I think was, was a second rounder. So you built that core. And then when, when they realized the team was starting to ascend in the summer of 2009, they go out and sign Marion Hosa. So they, they make a big ticket free agent signing. They got their critical mass and then they add. And I do think the Kings, is, that's what they're doing this summer too, right? They build up that farm system. Then they think, okay, we're at that critical mass. Let's go get Philip Deneau and trade for Victor Arvidsson. So to me, that's the, the format. Build up your prospect pool. The Leafs did it as well, even though they don't, they don't go far in the playoffs, but successful regular season team. They added Matthews, Marner, McDavid, or not McDavid, Nealander, I mean, via the draft, then you go sign John Tavares, right? So critical mass, add a piece. What say you, Mr. Kennedy? Yeah, I, I think you made some very good points there. Uh, I think when it comes to building a champion, uh, there's really only one exception to the rule. And, uh, you know, the, the rule is you kind of have to tear it down to the studs and build it back up. You need high, high picks. Um, and it's going to take like legit seven, eight years from beginning to Stanley Cup if you're lucky. If it all works out, it's probably going to take about that long. Um, you know, sometimes you can take a bit of a shortcut, but it, it takes a while to, to happen. And, you know, um, Chicago did it. Pittsburgh did it. Los Angeles did it. Uh, Washington did it. The one exception I would say uh, is St. Louis, and they did have one high pick in Petrangelo. Um, and well, I guess they had two because they had Eric Johnson as well, and they ended up, you know, trading him. Um, but you know, I, I think the key for the Blues is that they absolutely murdered two teams in trades early on. Uh, one was trading David Runblad to Ottawa for the first rounder that became Vladimir Tarasenko. And then, of course, there was the Ryan O'Reilly deal with Buffalo, which, you know, the Sabres made under duress. Uh, so, you know, St. Louis got two of their most important players via trades that were very one-sided. Um, but, again, having said that, you know, the Blues did have to bottom out a little for a couple of years in order to get some high picks. Uh, and even though Eric Johnson didn't end up playing – a key role in when they got good, you know, he was flipped and you, you know, get, you get the trade assets like Kevin Shattenkirk um, and, you know, you sort of go from there, but in general uh, it, it seems like these days there's kind of only the one way to do it. And, you know, again, looking at the back-to-back -back champs from Tampa, Stamkos was one, Hedman was two, you know, I mean, they had great scouting otherwise getting the likes of Kucherov and Braden Point and Andre Palat and Tyler Johnson. Um, but, you know, in general, they made a couple of really high picks. Those guys were key to what they did. Even, you know, Andre Vasilevsky was a first-rounder, even though he wasn't a high first-rounder. Um, so you got to draft well. 
and you got to draft high at least a couple of times. Well said. Funny thing about the Blues, too, the year before they won the Cup, they were sellers. They traded Paul Stasny at the trade deadline, right, to the Jets. And they went from seller one year to winning the Cup the next year. Uh, Last question from Brandon Gallagher. He wants to know, if Pavel Bure played in today's NHL, who would be the scarier player coming down the ice if you were a defenseman, him or McDavid? So it's always unfair to compare player era to era, but Brandon, since you are comparing players era to era and you want us to, then I will take this this kind of softball answer here and say, of course, it's McDavid because he's just a more evolved human being. He's got very similar puck skills to Bury. It's, it's sort of what the scouting report on McDavid was the moment he broke into the league, even beforehand. It was he's the fastest player with the puck on his stick since Pavel Bury and maybe the fastest player now whoever lives. And maybe Pavel Bury was before McDavid. So he does all those things that Burry did, but McDavid's just got a much bigger frame and he's got just modern size and strength, I think, modern equipment, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I, I still think you can make a case that Burry was the better pure goal scorer than McDavid, but at the same time, McDavid is just so talented that if he really wanted to be even, even better goal scorer, he probably could be. Just like Sidney Crosby every, you know, every 10 years is like, hey, I think I'm going to win the Rocket Richard this year. And he just, he just decides to be a goal scorer for a year. I, I'm sure McDavid has that ability too. So to me, the answer is McDavid. And uh, I think it's a pretty easy answer, to be honest. Yeah, I agree. It would be McDavid. And, you know, if you, if you put McDavid in the time machine and, you know, sent him back 20 years, I mean, or 20, 25 years, because I'm old now, um, and time has no meaning. Um, you know, I mean, McDavid would be scoring like 75, 80 goals a year without breaking a sweat, uh, just based on, you know, he, again, his speed, his frame, everything Matt mentioned there. Having said that, I think Pavel Bure could still play today. Uh, he might not be the, the top goal scorer in the league, but he would still be effective. And you can't say that about, a, you know, a lot of NHLers from the past. I mean, again, as Matt said, the game has evolved so much. It's so much faster and guys are in such better shape that it's really hard to compare eras. But yeah, I would go McDavid, but I mean, Burry could still play today and be a pretty effective player. For sure. My favorite imaginary scenario is like dropping Alex Ovechkin into like 1942. Like, the behemoth of a man, Alex Ovechkin, bludgeon opponents. He scored 17 goals in a victory over the Montreal Canadiens. And, like, you would just destroy everybody because of the, the skill and the, and the shot. By the end of the game, goaltenders were lying on the ice, cowarding from his shot. Like, it would just be – there'd be nothing like it, I think. Yeah, uh, goaltenders would quit and, work yeah. and go back to the – Yeah, that's right. Okay, we're going to finish it off with the rapid-fire game. I am the host this week, Ryan. Are you ready to play? Ready. Okay, question one. You are Kevin Adams. What is your lowest asking price for Jack Eichel that you're willing to go to? My lowest asking price, I think, would be like three first rounders uh, or the sort of equivalent of three first rounders. So, you know, like a high level prospect. Um, or like two high-level prospects and uh, and another first rounder, but uh, yeah, I think that would be my lowest. And it would also depend on the team. If it was like a really good team, it would have to be like you know four first rounders because I know that those picks aren't even going to be that high. All right, I'm going to say legit NHL top six forward who's youngish, uh, legit prospect and a first rounder. So if you were to pick a team like. You know, let's say it was 
I don't, I don't know why I'm going to say Edmonton. Obviously, they're not getting Jack Eichel. But just in terms of valuation, it's like, okay, we want Kyler Yamamoto, Philip Broberg, and a first-round pick. Something like that in terms of how I would tier the pieces. Next question. Rank your top three and bottom three months of the calendar. Mm, yes, yes. Okay, so I think we're, we'll be a, a little similar here because uh, we were talking about this the other day. I would say... June, and then maybe maybe May and October. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, those are those are pretty good months. Not too hot, not too cold. Get a little bit of variety there. Yeah, and then bottom would be like March, February, and. Probably April. Yeah. I just don't like the cold and uh, I really don't like the slush. Okay. Fair picks. I got June at the top. Um, Just, you know, from a pure weather standpoint, I think it's the most balanced month. You have the heat, but not the humidity yet. It's not the sticky, gross part of summer. Everything is just blooming and perfect. Allergy season hasn't come yet. October, I think. October might be my overall number one, actually, because you've got the start, you have baseball playoffs, start of the hockey season, you have fall weather where you can wear kind of any kind of combination and it might be comfortable, the changing colors. July, I think, is just rock solid. It's still the peak of summer. The bottom, I think August can get effed. August sucks. It's humid. It's gross. There's just every time you walk past a trash can, you got four wasps jumping on your head to hell with August. I think also March, April... Um, because they bring you the promise of spring, but really it's like one day, again, in the climate we're living in, we're in Toronto right now, you get one day where it's like, oh, you can wear just just a light jacket, and the next day it's snowing, it's all over the map, and I don't like that tease. You think the winter's over, and it keeps coming back, and it demoralizes you. Okay, next question. What game show do you think you'd be best at? I think I asked this question for reality TV before, but now I'm going to say game show. I'm going to go with Let's Make a Deal because uh, ever since the work from home uh, pandemic edict started, I have watched Let's Make a Deal with Wayne Brady uh, basically every day at lunch. <laughs> and I'm at the point where, like, I know when the zonks are coming. I know when they're lowballing them on uh, dollar amounts and, you know, when you should take the deal and when you should take the money. So, uh, if I went on Let's Make a Deal and got zonked, I would be supremely disappointed myself at this point. All right. I'm going to say Jeopardy. It is luck of the draw with the categories. Like if I've watched it, there's episodes where I think, wow, I would have won this episode because I, I am kind of a, a trivia buff. There's other episodes where I think, wow, uh, I would have been embarrassed on national TV in this episode. So it is luck of the draw. And I can say just to get on Jeopardy, which I've tried to do before, the quiz you have to answer to get on Jeopardy is way harder than the show. It's like 50 questions in five minutes or 50 questions in 10 minutes. And they're way tougher than the questions that you see on the show. So basically what they're trying to do is strain out people that might be hit miss. And just to be qualified for the show, you have to be amazing, which is why I didn't get on the show. So I'm not that amazing. Uh, next question. How many Stanley Cups does Connor McDavid retire with? I'm going to say one. And I don't know if it happens in Edmonton or if he Tamo Solani's it. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Or Ray, I guess Ray Borks it is a better example because Solani played for the Ducks twice. Uh, but yeah, he might Bork it, but he's definitely getting at least one. 
Okay. I'm going to say, I'm going to say one as well. I think it's going to be an Alex Ovechkin kind of trajectory. So maybe the, the Oilers, like they go down and back up and there's a new generation, but he's still there as the, the constant. Uh, next question. How many fist fights have you been in, in your life? And what would you say is your career record in those fights? Oh, I've actually never been in a fist fight. Yeah. So zero and zero people see me and they know not to mess with me. Uh, I'm just kidding. Um, but no, never been in a fight. I'm a really laid back dude. And uh, I also have a great radar for when trouble is about to happen. And therefore I leave uh, because I'm always sober as well. So yeah, zero. In, I, I guess uh, did not participate would be my record. All right. Good. I, I have only been in two. I haven't been in a fight in this millennium because I, I've had so many concussions that basically I can't win a fight. Like if I, I just have to avoid all fighting situations. One hockey fight, which I won. One uh, fist fight when I was like 12, which I lost. And, and the guy chipped my tooth. But we were still young enough that like as soon as he chipped my tooth, he, he suddenly got scared that he was in trouble and started like hugging me and saying sorry. Like a, it's kind of a little kid thing, right? So right. one and one is my career record in fist fights. Matt, I can't picture you in a hockey fight. Yeah, it was, it was, it actually happened. It was a, it was a practice and it was a practice where we were sharing the rink with another team. Oh, those were the worst. And, and their puck went to our zone and the guy like crashed into me when I was doing a drill or something. And I was in the <laughs> and then, yeah. So I won that fight, but that's it. So, yeah. Okay. See, my, in my hockey career, I went from, I led my league in goal scoring one year to I led the league in, in penalty minutes the next year. So I kind of learned how to be that goon very quickly. <laughs> nice nice okay last question which star wars character would be the best hockey player oh uh i mean this is kind of a joke answer i'm gonna say han solo because uh you never have to tell him the odds he uh he does not believe in analytics he just and, goes out and, plays. and does he shoot first or not that one's for the star wars oh he always shoots first <laughs> all right good good i'm gonna say darth maul He's very acrobatic because he was obviously his movements were portrayed by Ray Park, the crazy acrobat martial artist guy. So he could stick handle in a phone booth. I think you'd get like a Yammer Yager type of player out of Darth Maul and some really cool face paint as well. That is the end of the rapid fire game. That is the end of the podcast. Thank you for watching and listening. We'll be back a little bit later next week, likely on Thursday, and we are going to start previewing every division for the upcoming NHL season. Thank you for listening to the Hockey News Podcast. Make sure to check out THN.com slash subscribe to get issues of the Hockey News Magazine delivered right to your mailbox.